Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to the Law and Blockchain Podcast, hosted by Amy Wan, CEO of SageWise, a safety net for smart contracts and consultant for Security Token Academy. Welcome to this episode of the Law and Blockchain podcast. We have a special guest here this week. His name is Julian Kwan, and he joins us all the way from Singapore. Julian is the founder and CEO of Investacrowd, um, and we've actually known each other for a couple years, right? Um, we, we both come from the, the old real estate crowdfunding industry, um, and, you know, security tokens are kind of like a new version of it. And so I actually met you in person for the first time at the um, Crypto Invest Summit. So it was, it was great to put a name to a face. And you were telling me you know, about all the kinds of things um, that are going on out in Singapore and Asia around security tokens. But before we dive into that, how about, you know, can you tell me first a little bit about yourself and your journey and how you got from wherever you were, all the way through real estate crowdfunding, all the way to security tokens. To this podcast. Yes, to this podcast. <laughs> Hi, Amy. Yeah, no, it was great to connect uh, in person in LA. Um, yeah, a, a quick background. I'm, I'm Australian, Sydney born and raised. Uh, spent 12 years in China, Shanghai, Beijing. Started a couple of companies there, a uh, social media company, an advertising company, and a real estate development company. And then moved to Singapore about five years ago when the uh, when the crowdfunding the real estate crowdfunding model kind of started to um, take off in America <clears throat> so I'd been uh, I've been doing my own developments and looking at how to get into the, the tech kind of marriage to investing in real estate and saw that this was the beginning of, of that kind of movement so we looked around Asia and um, we looked around Asia and uh, specifically uh, in the China market um, how deals are done and the level of transparency or lack of transparency, um, et cetera, et cetera, meant that it certainly will end. And the concept of some foreign entrepreneurs doing a tech company in China and being successful, um, most of them aren't even allowed in. Um, so we, we looked around and said it's going to be either sort of Hong Kong and Singapore. So we, we looked at the regulation and thought who was going to be the most friendly and supportive of this new kind of um, online investment models. And it was definitely Singapore. So we, we set up in Singapore. Um, and then, yeah, we started doing deals. We've done about, uh, 28, 30 deals on the platform, um, mainly private equity, real estate, mainly developed markets of the U S Australia, UK for, for Asian investor base, um, investing across the capital stack. So, so debt and equity, um, in projects sort of raising 25 to hundred million dollars. And we got excited about, you know, the new digital security space and the security token offering space <clears throat> related to the problems within the. Uh, private equity real estate investing model, which is typically, well, the, the biggest issue is typically the illiquid component and having to give someone your money for five to 10 years. Um, and every single deal we've ever done on my platform or before has investors that are looking for some kind of exit, not necessarily because the deal, there's anything wrong with the deal, but because their life circumstances have changed. So it's almost a guaranteed whenever we do a deal that someone will come back looking for an exit. And because um, you know, the crowdfunding 1.0 model or even the private equity investing model is very paper driven. There's just no system that offers any type of ability for, um, you know, an investor in a deal to try to sort of sell their shares. 
Um, and then we looked at, and so what we got excited about is if we could start issuing digital shares and there were more platforms like ours and people could have, you could actually see and trade those shareholdings, that's going to completely change the whole investment model uh, again. So we kind of look at this whole blockchain space, um, security token, digital security space is kind of crowdfunding 2.0, um, which still requires all the sort of the 1.0 uh, elements, which is licenses and investors and so this, you know, following the rules and regulations, but it also builds in this whole new, super exciting, you know, way of holding your shares. Fantastic. Well, how about let's just start off with this. You know, I've, I've hosted on multiple episodes now guests who have been talking about the temperature of the security <laughs> in the U.S., but you're probably our first um, guest from abroad. And so, What's the temperature of the security token industry out there? Um, I, I, you know, uh, during the ICO phase, it, it almost seemed like there was regulatory arbitrage going on, right? It was like, oh, Asia is so much more friendly to these unregulated <clears throat> things in the U.S. And now yes. it's almost like there's a reverse. What's yeah, yeah, it's a good, good point. So I guess if we just look at uh, last year, and if you think about sort of January to December 2018, um, what we probably got wrong, um, or at least my, I was personally wrong about, is it, it looked like there was going to be a clear separation between the US and literally the rest of the world, um, and specifically Asia. So Korea was very pro-ICOs. The model is still going, actually. I think it's one of the few markets left on the planet that's still going. Um, but it's very Korean, very insular. Japan was initially very pro and then got very caught up in um, in everything. So they were very pro cryptocurrency, then they were sort of pro ICOs, and then the, the security token concept came in and then it all got like stuck. Um, China kind of went for the, the, the ban, I guess, and then you had other places like Singapore that were extremely positive um, because in about, I, I can't remember the exact date, I think it was like Q1 last year, you had like Switzerland and then... Um, a couple of other jurisdictions that in brackets compete with each other, actually putting out statements and um, materials saying we acknowledge the difference or we acknowledge this utility token concept, this ICO concept, if it's done properly, of course, which is separate from a security token and asset token. So, mm -hmm. so and then you thought well, Singapore is very competitive and very competitive. Number one competitor is probably one of them is Switzerland. So if those guys put the marker out there, then very quickly, it became obvious that Singapore was going to let this roll as long as it, it wasn't illegal, it wasn't scammy. Um, and I think Singapore became the second or third highest jurisdiction for raising ICO funding um, last year. So, so what did that mean? It meant that it was the gates were sort of open, um, but, um, and, and we were specifically talking about security tokens and being laughed out of events and told to find the exit all through the beginning of last year because everyone in Asia, no one in Asia wanted to talk about equity and security tokens. They just wanted to talk about ICOs and how to, you know, how to play that game. So um, if you fast forward to sort of uh, July and August, we would started to do some events for our investor base and the interest level was very strong within our investor base. Um, we were still the first people literally in Asia to do any events. And then um, around about October, you know, obviously, prices of crypto started melting dramatically around, I think, September, October. And then, um, you know, we went and spoke at an event in Hong Kong. And I believe that was the first 
sort of security token event, asset-backed token events um, ever in Hong Kong. Um, and that was in October. And that was just on the way before I came to see you guys in LA. So what happened in the subsequent Q4 last year or the last two months of last year was pretty much Asia just flipped the switch and when ICO is done, um, STO is the new thing. So um, the audience changed dramatically as I came back from the US after two months in the US and did another event, a Bloomberg event in Hong Kong again, just before Christmas, it was packed and it was packed with a completely different audience than what you would have found at these blockchain ICO events just two, three months before, you know, you know, bankers or financial people, you know, cause one of the, one of the, one of the interesting things about the security token space is you have a much larger buyer pool because it's just normal securities, right? So you have a lot, a lot, much more sophisticated money, much bigger money. Everyone can do it. Way less concerns about scams and difficulties and challenges. So yeah, it just, it was good. <laughs> so, so sort of the over space was, it, it definitely flipped hundred, you know, 180 degrees. Um, but it was only over the last two or three months. Now, I don't think there's a single, I haven't heard or seen of a single kind of ICO event in the last month, um, whether it's online or through invites or, or anything. So um, yeah, everyone's very excited about that now, but we're still probably 12 months behind the US in terms of thinking, uh, in terms of investment, um, in terms of platforms, uh, projects, products, um, and still just seeing the tail end of the sort of ICO guys coming across trying to play the STO space and realizing that securities require licenses and everything. And those guys have kind of that, those guys are kind of vaporized within a very, very short period of time, um, which I think is also good. Um, so now we start this year and I think the, um, you know, the focus on, uh, at any of these blockchain events now is always the key event or the main event or mostly structured around sort of the security token space and, that's where it's at right now. So yeah, I think where we, Asia, I think has an ability to catch up very fast. Um, but it's, but yeah, so this, this will be an exciting year to see what happens. So I feel like in the U S first, um, time people started mentioning security tokens was probably end of 2017. And, and back yep. then we weren't even calling it a security token. It was just a, a token or an ICO that is actually compliant with securities laws, right? Um, yep. And, you know, fast forward a year, we've seen, um, you know, the the first, you know, uh, ATS start trading security tokens. We've seen a proliferation of um, issuance platforms, um, custodians coming out of the woodworks, <laughs> all of those things. Where's Asia in all of that? And are they going to create their own or are they going to, do you think they're going to be, uh, using the tech that's been created in the U.S. or or how do you think it's going to go? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, I think that because of the nature of security laws, everything becomes much more localized and requirements are localized, whether you're fundraising or broker-dealers, whether you're issuing a Singapore company versus a U.S. company. So what we've discovered um, and we've developed relationships across sort of all North America with the issuance platforms as well as the exchanges, they're very US centric and that's obvious, um, but because it's new, um, it's extremely US centric. So I think what we're, so when we see this very fragmented market um, from both a supply chain as well as from uh, an understanding capacity, as well as kind of the overhang of the crypto ICO and, and, you know, the interesting thing about the security token space is they're not, ICOs, they're not Bitcoin, they're not cryptocurrency, they're just digital shares of real assets. So it's relevant to the original 
uh, or traditional markets. Um, but because of the connection, the one connection being sort of blockchain technologies, there's still a lot of confusion, a lot of education needed. So what we are personally doing is building sort of a one-stop shop where we can um, offer a sponsor or an investor um, the ability to, well, from a sponsor's perspective, the ability to, um, for us to do everything for them. So if you think about the interesting thing that happened really recently in the US, and you're right, it was probably 12 months ago that you started talking about these security token offerings. You've seen a bunch of platforms, uh, issuance platforms raising huge money um, and also all these security token protocols. And I've been to a few summits and heard everyone's ideas. But I think they kind of got, I, I don't think they kind of saw the whole picture. And I think from a legal perspective, you would definitely understand this much better than all of them. It's, if you think about issuing a high quality security offering, you need to find out exactly what the sponsors want, <laughs> what they need, what they want, what their requirements are. You need to find out what the broker dealers want, same thing, because they're going to help you raise money. You need to find out what investors want. You need to find out what ultimately the security token exchanges want, because that's the whole point of this, to get liquidity for trading these private um, shares. So the issuance companies were kind of banging the drum that that's what it was all about. And that's only like one tiny part of it. You know, that's a tech component of issuing the shares. And I think that's become very obvious in the last quarter of last year where you started to see these companies all trying to go and buy broker dealers because they're, they're claiming to be issuing security offerings, whether they're tokens or not, but you can't do that without licenses. So I think the real world has come on top of the, <laughs> the, the blockchain world and sort of there's some rude awakenings for, for kind of the industry. But yeah, look, I'm rambling on a bit, but I think over here, I think what you're going to see is um, you're going to have to see platforms, um, infrastructure being built kind of rapidly. And also I think an awareness of all the other players involved in the issuance of this and the tech alone is not going to solve uh, the problems uh, for an issuer. And I think that's the end game. Um, you know, so we are a broker dealer. We've also submitted a Singapore version of an exchange license, um, the US version of the ATS. And we did that because when we ran around the world and looked at 100 different security token offerings last year, everyone was saying they're going to list on Open Finance and T0, <laughs> the two exchanges, like everybody. First of all, there's obviously for all the foreign companies, zero understanding that they're not going to list foreign companies. They're going to have to be a US company at, the minimum, at a minimum, plus like there's 10,000 other people in front of you that have got bigger, better projects. So we thought, <clears throat> we thought, why would we can't just be helping clients issue primary issuance, you know, broker dealing, raising money, um, launching security token offerings, and then all telling them to go call T0. It's just not, it's just not um, logical. So we've embarked on sort of building out our own um, exchange that we can offer trading and liquidity, secondary trading for, for our clients. And that's again, because there's a whole world, there's a huge world out there, like all the Singapore companies or the Hong Kong companies or the Asian companies, um, they're, they're going to need their own, uh, exchanges that are actually aware, licensed in the right regions and, and understanding how it all works. So it's going to be, I think, I think the best way to explain it that I try to, when we talk to my team about it, it's like security, security token offerings, uh, digital security offerings. Uh, just think about the, the real world we're in. You, it's going to be, it's going to be like New York, London, Singapore, Sydney. Like it's going to be where liquidity is. It's going to be where the strongest rules are. It's going to be where the money is. It's it's not going to be in Malta. It's not going to be in Gibraltar. Um, 
because it, it's. Oh, I think the Malta people might be very upset to hear that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I just think because if you think about from an issuer's perspective, no, we've got 500 sponsors in our in our network, like real estate companies, uh, private, and none, not a single one of them would issue in Malta. Why? Because without tokens, they wouldn't do it. So just because there's tokens, they're not going to do it. And then you've got liquidity issues. You've got to market, make these markets. You've got to have money that wants to be there. And, you know, no offense, but that was a failed stock exchange. So I don't understand why, um, you know, and you, but look, I'm here, we're friendly to all these jurisdictions. And I think the more that those other jurisdictions create competition for the leading developed world is still a good thing. But, you know, you've got to think about, what there's a market for that for sure but it, it's certainly not the type of assets that we deal in because none of the issues would go there interesting yeah. so you know you're you 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 bring up a good point in the fact that um all these issuance protocols and everything that have sprung up it's all u.s licensure it's it's um built for to be to comply with u.s um uh, capital markets, financial services, securities laws, mm -hmm. things of that sort. Um, and then how about the rest of the world? So, so how does, well, I guess my first question is how similar or different is the U.S. securities market to markets around the world? And are there ways to make all of this interoperable? Because I, I think, you know, it would be a disservice um, and unfortunately, you know, the regulations are what they are, right? They're, they're all hyper-local, uh, all based on, you know, whatever jurisdiction you live in. But, you know, with this technology, it would be, I think, um, unfortunate if, you know, we had to rebuild the same systems around the world and then you could only trade in that jurisdiction and it, it couldn't be this, like, global worldwide phenomena that we saw with ICOs where, you know, oh, someone in, I don't know, Ethiopia is issuing, great. Let's buy it out here in this other random country. Yes. Uh, that's probably the elephant in the room um, in the whole space. I think, you know, the goal is for as much use and implementation of sort of decentralization and technologies around that as possible. The goal is all also to do it compliantly with the existing regulated framework that we live in, that we both know quite a lot about. Um, I, I ultimately think, yes, the technology is available to be able to cross border quickly and um, a, a, lot, a lot better than before. Um, <clears throat> I ultimately think you're going to need um, global players that have licenses because they've bought or built systems in different jurisdictions. And under that framework, you'll then have the interoperability that we all believe in and that we all want to happen. Um, I think that that's probably the, the end game. At the moment, you're still in a position where the whole industry is being built at the same time, which is why it's challenging. I mean, you've got people like us applying for security token exchange models to the regulators, and you're still trying to show them the first primary issuance tokens, but you're talking about a license to trade them. So, you know, the, the market's also... <laughs> it's pretty crazy, but the market's also extremely impatient um, because a lot of people are expecting the speed of last year for ICOs as the same speed as security tokens. And, you know, if you work in the secu securities industry, you know that that's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to mirror, mirror that speed because, again, that whole thing was built breaking every, well, who knows? That whole thing was built where 
all rules were in question <laughs> across the world and a lot of people were able to do things that were clearly impossible to do in the security token space. So I think interoperability um, is very, very important. Um, you've got a situation where you have issuance platforms now sort of saying we can issue tokens anywhere in the world and do everything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, you know, the, the, the ultimately, the security token exchanges should be the ones, in my perspective, should be the ones pushing out the issuance tech for everyone to use. They should be more sort of the guidance, just like now. Like you don't have, you know, NASDAQ determines what you need to do to get listed on NASDAQ. You don't have the broker dealers and everyone else determining how to get listed on NASDAQ. But in security token spaces, it's also new. You've got all these other people that are trying to determine what the end game is, but they're not even the end game. So I think ultimately, um, you need a T0, you need uh, Open Finance, a BACT. You need one of those guys to be like, we, can, we have an exchange in Singapore and Malta and London or whatever, and underneath that banner, we can then have issuers that can issue potentially uh, one or potentially multiple um, tokens for shares in a particular uh, entity that make sense across those, across those jurisdictions. So, yeah, I think it's... I think, I think it's definitely going to get way better than it ever was before. And I think, but I still think it would be, um, you know, we talk already with different groups saying we've got an exchange in this country, we've got an exchange in that country, let's all sort of partner together. And it's like, that'll be good. But then you can see, obviously, there'll be, even though everyone's mission's the same, there'll be, you know, five competing interests and five different regulations they all have to deal with. So again, I think it needs to just be rolled up. So funnily enough, in decentralized land and security token space, I think you're going to end up seeing a massive centralization if you want to see the benefits of the interoperability, um, at least at the beginning. And then I guess the... That's really interesting. Yeah. And I think the, I mean, the ultimate dream, I guess I would say, is people who have issued a security token that floats around the universe that doesn't need an exchange, it, it bumps into buyers and other tokens yeah. and it just do a trade with. That's awesome. But yeah, you know, we need a few more stages before we even get to that point, I think. Interesting. Out in Asia or Singapore, um, wherever you have a good perspective on, what, um, what appetite do you see in terms of what types of security tokens folks are interested in? Are they interested in, you know, startup equity or, uh, you know, index fund stuff or real estate asset backed, um, you know, revenue sharing notes? What, what's the appetite? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we think that um, we think that the underlining offering is the most important thing. Um, so you, you rolled through sort of a bunch of different types of offerings. Our focus, and again, this is based off the feedback we've got from our clients and our investor base, is we focus on private equity, venture capital, and real estate um, security tokens, and they have to significantly improve on what's available in the market. So if I look at real estate as an example, mm -hmm. we have people calling us even, you know, even yesterday, someone called me up and said, I want to launch a real estate token. You know, how does it work? Uh, I said, well, what, what are you offering? I said, well, it's going to be like a five, four, 5% return. And it's in an emerging Southeast Asian market. And I said, well, let's just stop there. Like you can get a 6%, <laughs> you can get 6 on a Singapore public listed REIT, right? That's tradable. It's liquid. It's, you know, why would anyone pay? Yeah. So, um, we kind of look at it and think significantly beat um, what's out there in the market um, in, in terms of real estate than private equity. So it's obviously 
REITs have got their own issues, but they've certainly got liquidity. Um, so it's got to be mul multiple times that. It's got to be an 8, 10, 12, 15, 20% projected returns or even debt returns. Otherwise, why, you know, why go through the whole headache? I think, um, I think, I, I think that's funny because I feel like we always saw the opposite problem in right. the crowdfunding industry, which is what kind of folks would turn to crowdfunding. It was the folks who they couldn't get the capital they wanted from, you know, the institutions or uh, the, the other players in the capital markets at the valuations they were hoping for. And so they went to retail investors and oftentimes it wasn't a very good deal. And, and, and so you're talking about, we have to find deals that beat the market that the, the institutions would slobber after. And that's the kind of stuff we'd put on a security token, but that's extremely hard to source. Um, yes. Well, just as a side note, I think the industry, the crowdfunding industry did shoot one of its feet and shoot themselves by people, platforms doing what you just said. We, we knew that would never fly in Asia because um, we started our business with sort of our existing investor base that I had from my development companies so family offices and high net worth. You can't turn up with a worse deal um, on the yeah. street. Yeah. I thought, I, I stupidly thought other platform CEOs and founders would think the same thing. <laughs> they certainly didn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, you're right. I think you, you do. I, I think the security token space is, you know, the people have got a lot of different ideas on it for us. It makes the most sense for me for larger projects. It makes no sense to me for a startup because if I think about the ultimate end game for security token, it's tradability. You want tradability on an exchange. What does an exchange want? So it wants a high quality asset that's producing income or a bigger project where we can, and something we can actually value on a daily basis. How do you value a startup token that's a seed round? Like, is it, if it's trading, like you, you basically can't. So I think that what's missing from all the discussions I have in the space so far, except, you know, very rarely, one of the other reasons why we got super excited about, let's just talk about real estate for now. One of the other excited, I got super excited about this, this security token offering space was if you think about, you highlighted the problem 10 a minute ago. You know, it's hard to find great deals that, you know, you can get your hands on that's being fought over by institutions that still make sense and da 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 da, da the whole list of, of, of issues. And that's true because 99.9% .9 of offerings are someone, is someone raising money to go do something, either buy a building, do a new fund, do whatever. So, Typically, you have thousands or 100 or how many people looking at a particular deal. If it's a great deal, everybody wants it. And usually one big guy wants the whole thing, pushes everyone else out. So from, you know, selfishly, when I think about it from a platform perspective, we could have raised 100 times. We had 100 times more capital that actually made it into our deals because of that problem. Now, when you think about the, because again, this guy's raising 20 million it's available first come first serve some guy writes the, the big check and it's done and everyone else misses out now we start thinking about offerings in a completely different way so we start thinking about real estate assets both single assets as well as funds and we start talking about projects that are already funded so it's 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 churning off it's, it's paying off a 10 12 15 percent return because it's an existing fund but the owners of that fund will typically there's always someone looking for some liquidity. So if we start thinking about using the security token offering space, the digital security offering space to take existing buildings and assets and funds and carving off minority portions of equity or debt that can then be sold down to an existing, it's, 
an audience, it's a, it's a product that's infinitely bigger because there's way more buildings on the planet than new buildings being built. And there's way less risk because you've got these existing funds and assets. So that is why I got one of the reasons I got so excited about it all, because then you can find the 15% yield for all your $20 million investors, because there's enough of those bigger guys that would pay that liquidity, that premium to get out or, or just to have a portion of their, their asset or fund uh, in liquidity. So when we think about what type of products, then you start thinking about they're the types of products that get me excited. Interesting. What kind, I mean, aside from real estate and specifically large real estate products, um, what do you think there will be an appetite for first for, for those types of deals? Like, are we, are you talking about um, multifamily in the U.S.? Is it, this going to be income producing or is this going to be the more risky, like, you know, uh, new construction stuff or, you know, hotels, like what are we, what, what do you think, you know, you're going to see a lot of traction with, at least in the beginning to, to make this space. Yeah, I think um, high level uh, foreign investors need higher returns to deal with the risk and the currency and everything. Um, I think a lot of the issues with the U S Issues, a lot of the problems with the U.S. issue is they're like, well, this is an amazing building and it's in San Francisco and it's just so amazing and amazing, 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 and it pays 2% yield. And I'm like, no one cares. You know, again, because what's the return profile of a localized offering like a public listed REIT if that's going to pay 6%, then why would I bother dealing with it all? So when we think about what's going to work, um, I think I, I, my personal company mandate is don't put out anything that's not paying double-digit returns. Um, full stop. So when you talk about multifamily or whatever, you know, investors just Asian investors predominantly care about numbers. Um, you know, if it looks like a good location, looks like a good sponsor, well, they could be building a student housing or a commercial or multifamily or a factory, but as long as the returns is sort of what matters. Now, if you go buy a building and you're going to own it forever and put it in, that's a different story, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about making investments. So what we're looking at is we're looking at a high team, double digit return, um, real estate uh, token that's going to be repositioning and rehabilitating tier two, T three city commercial assets um, following the trend lines of sort of the millennial housing issues and all of that fun stuff that's going on in America um, for the VC backed token. Again, it's a VC fund, right? So they don't like to do any projections, which is one of the funny things about them. All. It's one of the funniest things about the, the investment model in the, you know, they just don't like doing projections, but again, but the projections are, are, are probably, certainly in the double digit um, and above targets. Um, so that, that's what I think matters most. And then it'll still come down to who's running it, what's the location, um, you know, and that's the challenge for uh, existing models is, you know, all the Asians want to be, for example, in American real estate, and be in LA and New York and San Fran, but, you know, you know the returns just aren't attractive. So they, they want everything. So you need to then come up with, so this is, Again, this is, this, this is the whole crowdfunding 2.0, the technology we didn't have before, the product we didn't have before, the potential globalized investor base we didn't really have before. This is what we're putting all our eggs, you know, this is what we're betting on with this whole space. Fantastic. Very interesting. Um, are you hearing anything in particular around securities from the Chinese side at all? Um, I heard something really stupid the other day, which was some government official saying security tokens are illegal. Which, 
I, I saw that headline too. Yeah. yeah, I lived in China 20 years and I'm half Chinese, so I can say stuff like that. Um, but it was, it was stupid, basically saying security offerings are illegal. It's like, okay. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even know what to say about that. Um, so around China, I think China is always, um, I think the Chinese renminbi, the yuan, will be probably one of the first digitized dollars. So the hate down or the perceived hate down on ICO crypto is false. Um, they're just going to work out how to control the whole thing. So security tokens, if you think about China and you think about our space, I mean, I think about the, the P2P lending crowdfunding space, the government at one point, this wasn't far, less than a couple of years ago, at one point the government was issuing statements saying we have at least 80% of the five to 6,000 P2P companies in our company country that are completely fraudulent. <laughs> like these were statements being made. Why do I think that's relevant? Because when every single company and every single structure is issued as a digital share offering, the government itself will be able to track it all, the transparency, the abilities to oh, create. Yeah. The it's They're going to love it. Brother. That's my point. That's my point. They're going to love it. They're going to absolutely love security token space. So right now they're going to be like, it's illegal till we work out how the hell we get it all together and we're in control of everything and then it won't be illegal. Um, so that's, that's exactly what's going to happen. I mean, bit of a regulator's dream. It's regulator's dream. Regulator's dream. I mean, um, you know, there's, there's just some of my personal files, that whole thing. Oh, disaster. You know, that's just me. Um, imagine if you're a regulator with 50 million companies that you've got to keep paperwork in a shell. Anyway, long story short, they're going to be super pro, just like all the governments will be super, super pro doing their own version of cryptocurrency because they'll actually be able to know where all their dollars are for a change. So yeah, I expect massive things in China, but it'll just be completely under the thumb of the government the whole way. But um, yeah, that, that's what's going on up there. But Chinese investors, if you will, um, they're the same as always. They're uh, out there looking at things. They've got BVI companies, Cayman companies. They've got friends, cousins, four passports. You know, they're all over this stuff. So, um, yeah, they're there. There's, there's a lot of Chinese investors for this stuff. <laughs> Fantastic. Julian, how can people find and follow you on the Internet? Yeah, so we're at investorcrowd.com. Um, I'm sure you can add that to the notes there. That's probably the best thing. We also have a WhatsApp group. Um, again, all of that's up on the website. Um, that's where we launch the latest news and the first deal information. Um, so, yeah, we welcome uh, welcome any new members. And, um, yeah, it was great talking today. Lots of interesting things to talk about. Great. Fantastic. <laughs> well, we'd love to hear about, you know, how the, the climate in Asia continues to evolve so keep in touch yeah for sure all right take care okay thank you